Section 6 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Henry Clay, Part 2. The next important movement in Congress was in reference to the charter of the newly proposed Second United States Bank, and in this the great influence of Clay was felt. He was in favor of it as a necessity in view of the miserable state of the finances the suspension of specie payments and the multiplication of state banks in the earlier part of his career in eighteen eleven he had opposed a recharter of hamilton's national bank as a dangerous money corporation and withal unconstitutional on the ground that the general government had no power to charter companies all this was in accordance with western democracy ever jealous of the money power and the theorizing proclivities of jefferson who pretended to hate everything which was supported in the old country but with advancing light and the experience of depreciated currency from the multiplication of state banks clay had changed his views exposing himself to the charge of inconsistency which however he met with engaging candor claiming rather credit for his ability and willingness to see the change of public needs he now therefore supported the bill of calhoun which created a national bank with a capital of thirty five million dollars substantially such as was proposed by hamilton the charter was finally given in april eighteen sixteen to run for twenty years doubtless such a great money corporation great for those times did wield a political influence and it might have been better if the bank had been chartered with a smaller capital it would have created fewer enemies and might have escaped the future wrath of general jackson webster at first opposed the bill of calhoun but when it was afterward seen that the bank as created as an advantage to the country he became one of its strongest supporters webster was strongly conservative by nature but when anything was established like lord thurlow he ceased all opposition especially if it worked well in eighteen sixteen james monroe was elected president and clay expected to be made secretary of state as a step to the presidency which he now ardently desired but he was disappointed john quincy adams being chosen by monroe as secretary of state monroe offered to clay the mission to england and the department of war both of which he declined preferring the speakership to which he was almost unanimously re-elected here clay brought his influence to bear in opposition to the views of the administration to promote internal improvements to which some objected on constitutional grounds but which he defended both as a statesman and a western man the result was a debate ending in a resolution that congress has power under the constitution to appropriate money for the construction of post roads military and other roads and of canals for the improvement of water courses meanwhile a subject of far greater interest called out the best energies of mr clay the beginning of a memorable struggle even the agitation of the slavery question which was not to end until all the slaves in the united states were emancipated by a single stroke of abraham lincoln's pen so long as the products of slave labor were unprofitable through the exhaustion of the tobacco fields there was a sort of sentimental philanthropy amongst disinterested southern men tending to a partial emancipation but when the cotton gin invented in seventeen ninety three had trebled the value of slaves and the breeding of them became a profitable industry the philanthropy of the planters vanished the english demand for american cotton grew rapidly and in eighteen thirteen francis c lowell established cotton manufactures in new england so that cotton leaped into great importance 
Thus, the South had now become jealous of interference with its favorite institution. In an address in Manchester, England, October 1863, the first of that tremendous series of mob-controlling speeches with which Henry Ward Beecher put a check on the English government by convincing the English people of the righteousness of the federal cause during our Civil War, that Minister Plenipotentiary, as Oliver Wendell Holmes called him, gave a witty summary of this change. After showing that the great fathers of revolutionary times, and notably the great Southerners, were anti-slavery men, that the first abolition society was formed in the middle and border states, and not in the Northeast, in that emancipation was enacted by the eastern and middle states as a natural consequence of the growth of that sentiment, the orator said, What was it, then, when the country had advanced so far towards universal emancipation in the period of our national formation that stopped this onward tide? First, the wonderful demand for cotton throughout the world, precisely when, from the invention of the cotton gin, it became easy to turn it to service. Slaves that before had been worth from three to four hundred dollars began to be worth six hundred dollars. That knocked away one-third of adherence to the moral law. Then they became worth seven hundred dollars, and half the law went. Then eight or nine hundred dollars, and there was no such thing as moral law. Then one thousand or twelve hundred dollars, and slavery became one of the Beatitudes. Therefore, when in 1818 the territory of Missouri applied for admission to the Union as a state, the South was greatly excited by the proposition from Mr. Talmadge of New York that its admission should be conditioned upon the prohibition of slavery within its limits. It was a revelation to the people of the North that so bitter a feeling should be aroused by opposition to the extension of an acknowledged evil which had been abolished in all their own states. The Southern leaders, on their side, maintained that Congress could not, under the Constitution, legislate on such a subject that it was a matter for the states alone to decide, and that slavery was essential to the prosperity of the southern states, as white men could not labor in the cotton and rice fields. The northern orators maintained that not only had the right of Congress to exclude slavery from the territories been generally admitted, but that it was a demoralizing institution and more injurious to the whites even than to the blacks. The southern leaders became furiously agitated and threatened to secede from the Union rather than to submit to northern dictation while at the North the state legislatures demanded the exclusion of slaves from Missouri. Carl Schurz, in his admirable Life of Clay, makes a pertinent summary. The slaveholders watched with apprehension the steady growth of the free states in population, wealth, and power. As the slaveholders had no longer the ultimate extinction, but now the perpetuation of slavery in view, the question of sectional power became one of first importance to them, and with it the necessity of having more slave states for the purpose of maintaining the political equilibrium, at least in the Senate. A struggle for more slave states was to them a struggle for life. Thus the two elements of commercial profit and political power were involved in the struggle of the South for the maintenance and extension of slavery. The House of Representatives in 1819 adopted the Missouri Bill with the amendment restricting slavery, but the Senate did not concur, and Alabama was admitted as a territory without slavery restriction. In the next Congress, Missouri was again introduced, but the anti-slavery amendment was voted down. In 1820, Mr. Thomas, a senator from Illinois, proposed as a mutual concession that Missouri should be admitted without restriction, but that in all that part of the territory outside that state ceded by France to the United States, north of the latitude of 36 degrees 30 minutes, the southern boundary of Missouri, slaves should thereafter be excluded, and this bill was finally passed March 2, 1820. 
Mr. Clay is credited with being the father of this compromise, but, according to Mr. Schertz, he did not deserve the honor. He adopted it, however, and advocated it with so much eloquence and power that it owed its success largely to his efforts, and therefore it is still generally ascribed to him. At that time, no statesman North or South had fully grasped the slavery question. Even Mr. Calhoun once seemed to have no doubt as to the authority of Congress to exclude slavery from the territories, but he was decided enough in his opposition when he saw that it involved an irreconcilable conflict of interests, that slavery and freedom are antagonistic ideas, concerning which there can be no genuine compromise. There may be compromises, says von Holst, with regard to measures, but never between principles. And slavery, when the Missouri Compromise was started, was looked upon as a measure rather than as a principle, concerning which few statesmen had thought deeply. As the agitation increased, measures were lost sight of in principles. The compromise by which Missouri was admitted as a slave state, while slavery should be excluded from all territory outside of it north of 36 degrees 30 minutes, was a temporary measure of expediency, and that that period was probably a wise one, since, if slavery had been excluded from Missouri, there might have been a dissolution of the Union. The preservation of the Union was the dearest object to the heart of Clay, who was genuinely and thoroughly patriotic. Herein he doubtless rendered a great public service, and proved himself to be a broad-minded statesman. To effect this compromise, Clay had put forth all his energies, not only in eloquent speeches and tireless labors in committees and a series of parliamentary devices for harmonizing the strife, but in innumerable interviews with individuals. In 1820, Clay retired to private life in order to retrieve his fortunes by practice at the bar. Few men without either a professional or a private income can afford a long-continued public service. Although the members of Congress were paid, the pay was not large enough, only $8 a day at that time. But Clay's interval of rest was soon cut short. In three years, he was again elected to the House of Representatives, and in December 1823, was promptly chosen speaker by a large majority. He had now recovered his popularity, and was generally spoken of as the great pacificator. In Congress his voice was heard again in defense of internal improvements, the making of roads and canals, President Monroe having vetoed a bill favoring them on the ground that it was unconstitutional for Congress to vote money for them. Clay, however, succeeded in inducing Congress to make an appropriation for a survey of such roads as might be deemed of national importance which Mr. Monroe did not oppose. It was ever a vital necessity, in the eyes of Mr. Clay, to open up the West to settlers from the East, and he gloried in the prospect of the indefinite expanse of the country even to the Pacific Ocean. Sir, said he, in the debate on this question, it is a subject of peculiar delight to me to look forward to the proud and happy period, distant as it may be, when circulation and association between the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Mexican Gulf shall be as free and perfect as they are at this moment in England, the most highly improved country on the globe. Sir, a new world has come into being since the Constitution was adopted. Are we to neglect and refuse the redemption of that vast wilderness which once stretched unbroken beyond the Allegheny? In these views he proved himself one of the most far-sighted statesmen that had as yet appeared in Congress, a typical Western man of enthusiasm and boundless hope. Not less enthusiastic was he in his open expressions of sympathy with the Greek struggle for liberty, as was the case also with Daniel Webster, both advocating relief to the Greeks, not merely from sentiment, but to strike a blow at the holy alliance of European kingdoms, then bent on extinguishing liberty in every country in Europe. 
clay's noble speech in defense of the greeks was not however received with unanimous admiration since many of the members of congress were fearful of entangling the united states in european disputes and wars and the movement came to naught then followed the great debates which led to the famous tariff of eighteen twenty four in which mr clay although speaker of the house took a prominent part in committee of the whole advocating an increase of duties for the protection of american manufacturers of iron hemp glass lead wool woolen and cotton goods while duties on importations which did not interfere with american manufacturers were to be left on a mere revenue basis this tariff had become necessary as he thought in view of the prevailing distress produced by dependence on foreign markets he would provide a home consumption for american manufacturers and thus develop home industries which could be done only by imposing import taxes that should protect them against foreign competition his speech on what he called the american system was one of the most elaborate he ever made and mr carl schurz says of it that his skill of statement his ingenuity in the grouping of facts and principles his plausibility of reasoning his brilliant imagination the fervor of his diction the warm patriotic tone of his appeals presented the arguments which were current among high tariff men then and which remain so still while on the other hand his superficial research his habit of satisfying himself with half knowledge and his disinclination to reason out propositions logically in all their consequences gave incompleteness to his otherwise brilliant effort it made a great impression in spite of its weak points and called out in opposition the extraordinary abilities of daniel webster through whose massive sentences appeared his superiority in keenness of analysis in logical reasoning in extent and accuracy of knowledge in reach of thought and mastery of fundamental principles over all the other speakers of the day and this speech of mr webster's stands unanswered notwithstanding the opposing views he himself maintained four years afterwards when he spoke again on the tariff but representing manufacturing interests rather than those of shipping and commerce advocating expediency rather than abstract principles the truth of which cannot be gainsaid the bill as supported by mr clay passed by a small majority the members from the south generally voting against it after the tariff of eighteen twenty four the new england states went extensively into manufacturing and the middle states also the productive idea had become popular in the north and under strong protest from the agricultural south in eighteen twenty eight a new tariff bill was enacted largely on the principle of giving more protection to every interest that asked for it this called by its opponents the tariff of abominations was passed while clay was secretary of state the discontent under it was to give rise to southern nullification and to afford clay another opportunity to act as pacificator all this tariff war is set forth in clear detail in professor sumner's life of jackson this question of tariffs has for seventy years now been the great issue next to slavery between the north and south more debates have taken place on this question than on any other in our congressional history and it still remains unsettled like most other questions of political economy the warfare has been constant and uninterrupted between those who argue subjects from abstract truths and those who look at local interests and maintain that all political questions should be determined by circumstances when it seemed to be the interest of great britain to advocate protection for her varied products protection was the policy of the government when it became evidently for her interest to defend free trade then free trade became the law of parliament on abstract grounds there is little dispute on the question if all the world acted on the principles of free trade protection would be indefensible practically it is a matter of local interest it is the interest of new england to secure protection for its varied industries and to secure free raw materials for manufacture 
it is the interest of agricultural states to buy wares in the cheapest market and to seek foreign markets for their surplus breadstuffs the question however on broad grounds is whether protection is or is not for the interest of the whole country and on that point there are differences of opinion among both politicians and statesmen formerly few discussed the subject on abstract principles except college professors and doctrinaires but it is a most momentous subject from a material point of view and the great scale on which protection has been tried in america since the civil war has produced a multiplicity of consequences industrial and economic which have set up widespread discussions of both principles and practical applications how it will be finally settled no one can predict perhaps through a series of compromises with ever lessening restriction until the millennial dream of universal free trade shall become practicable protection has good points and bad ones while it stimulates manufactures it also creates monopolies and widens the distinctions between the rich and the poor disproportionate fortunes were one of the principal causes of the fall of the roman empire and are a grave danger to our modern civilization but then it is difficult to point out any period in the history of civilization when disproportionate fortunes did not exist except in primitive agricultural states in the enjoyment of personal liberty like switzerland and new england one hundred years ago they certainly existed in feudal europe as they do in england today the great cotton lords are feudal barons under another name where money is worshipped there will be money aristocrats who in vulgar pride and power rival the worst specimens of a hereditary nobility there is really little that is new in human organizations little that solomon and aristotle had not learned when we go to the foundation of society it is the same story in all ages and countries more that is new is superficial and transitory the permanent is eternally based on the certitudes of life which are moral and intellectual rather than mechanical and material whatever promotes these certitudes is the highest political wisdom end of section 6